Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. According to the 2020 Poverty Fact Sheet produced by Dr. Alina Delavaga of the School of Social Work at the University of Memphis and Dr. Gregory M. Blumenthal, the city of Memphis has a poverty rate of nearly 22% and a child poverty rate of 35%. Black and Latino residents consistently suffer greater poverty rates than non-Hispanic whites in Memphis and Shelby County. The disparities observed in Shelby County are much larger than in the United States, which has an overall poverty rate of about 11%. Poverty in Memphis has decreased markedly for all ages and for non-Hispanic whites and Black residents as a whole, but has increased slightly for Hispanics. The city of Memphis poverty rate for Black residents is 26% compared to the national average of 20%. For Hispanics and Latinos, it's nearly 30% compared to 17% nationally. And the poverty rate for non-Hispanic whites in the city of Memphis has continued to decrease to 9.3% compared to 8.2% nationally. Now, the American Rescue Plan's monthly child tax credit has been credited with reducing the number of children in poverty in the United States by more than 40%. In a recent NPR marriage survey, almost six in 10 eligible households said they received the child tax credit. But the 59% of eligible respondents is far below the number of families that the government expects should be getting funds. Moreover, among the respondents who received the child tax credit, a majority said the payments have helped a little, about 64% said that, and only 15% said they helped a lot. Now, I know I just gave you all a lot of information, but it is so important to the conversation that we're going to have today. And also, as we're thinking about our city specifically, and I just have to underline the point that the poverty rates in Memphis are astronomically, in my opinion, higher than the national average. And we're going to get into how we should be thinking about this and maybe some ways that we could think about solutions as well. So to talk more about economic inequality and families today, I'm joined by Dr. Dedrick Williams. He is an assistant professor of sociology in the department of sociology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. His research focuses on race and racism, black families, health and inequality. Dr. Williams' current research on racism and families uses critical race theory as a theoretical perspective to challenge conventional sociological research on racial economic inequality among families. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Dedrick Williams. We are so excited to have you here with us this morning. I appreciate being here. Thanks for the invite. Um, I am looking forward to the opportunity to engage with you in dialogue around these pressing issues. So I appreciate being here. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, and I mean, such pressing issues. You know, when I was looking at the data, um, I was just so shocked, right? In, in comparing these numbers um, and thinking about Memphis. And again, to me, what an astronomical amount of of poverty, child poverty at 35%, 
overall poverty rate of 22% compared to national average around 11%. Um, and so even for you, when you heard those kind of numbers, and I know you've thought about this in a lot of different ways, but what, what are kind of your initial reactions to thinking about Memphis <laughs> compared to the nation or even in the context of Tennessee? Um, so that's, that's a really good question. So my initial thoughts um, in many ways that may um, be surprised to some of the listeners is that uh, for me, it's not surprising, right? So if, when, you, when you study race, particularly the race in the way that I study race, these particular um, um, stats are not surprising. I think the critical question, and I, I guess we'll get to this throughout the segment here, it's why these disparities exist and why they persist in the United States, right? And zeroing in, zeroing in on Memphis in particular, given the history of Memphis, um, the, his, the, the racial history of Memphis um, more specifically, then most of us who are doing this work um, are not surprised in these numbers. The, the, the conversation again should be why that these particular numbers persist. And so, um, they're, they're, uh, to your point, um, yeah, there's a, there's a large gap of disparities in, in poverty across racial groups. And there's, um, the conversation I think is twofold. One is highlighting that those numbers exist in what you did, um, eloquently in the introduction here. Um, but I, I look forward to have a dialogue with you and just really unpacking what that means um, as a um, resident of Tennessee now, but thinking about um, Memphis in particular. Yes, yeah, and we'll, we will have a lot to talk about because as I briefly mentioned, these numbers from Memphis are very distinct from the rest of the state um, and thinking specifically about the racial disparity just within Memphis, much higher than in other places in the state as well. But before we go there and really dissect that, could you kind of just give us maybe just an overview or more contextual information about how we think about families and inequality? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. So part of my research agenda um, as a sociologist is thinking about um, why racial inequality persists and the role that families have been, um, the role of families and how they create um, opportunities or not. But it's not just families themselves, but as you also talked about, excuse me, in the introduction, it's policies and, and programs that actually assist families or not assist families in this particular moment. So part of, part of um, my kind of, again, my research agenda is asking the question, how does family, how do families contribute um, the, to the maintenance of inequality across racial lines, right? And it's not because of families themselves, it's, be, it's, it's largely because of how we think about families as a country. So I, I want to step back and say it's not families themselves that quote unquote contributes to racial inequality, but is it is the public imagination on how families uh, contribute to inequality. I hope that makes sense here. Yes, yes. So I think this is really key. Um, 
So you talk about the public imagination of families. So let's stop there for a second. So in the public imaginary, what do we think is a family or maybe what is the right type of family or even the wrong type of family that's kind of guiding how we then think about policies or who should be benefiting from policies or what type of policies we should even enact? That now that's the million dollar question. So now <laughs> we, we we'll come out the gate really strong here. So part of the public imagination is that families are often seen as an individualistic phenomena, right? So if you are in a family, then the responsibility of inequality rests upon you, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you are, let's say, married in the United States then the assumption is that marriage somehow provide is a mechanism within itself to get people out of poverty. And if you're not married, let's say the, the, the quote unquote dreaded single parent household that's often disproportionately black and brown families, then the responsibility falls on you, right? So the ideal is if you are of um, a particular family type, then the response, and if you're more likely to be poor, then the responsibility rests upon you. Well, part of my work tests that notion, that taking for granted idea, and really tests it empirically. So what, if, if that is to be true, then we should, we should see that regardless of your kind of, regardless of the racialized group that you're a part of, if you're married, you should have equal poverty rates. If you're non-married, you should have equal poverty rates. But the data are clear in that even within marriage as a kind of family formation, people who are racialized as white are less likely to be poor compared to Black and um, Latinx families who also marry. And when you look at the statistic across non-marital households, we see that black and brown families are still disproportionately poor relative to families racialized as white. So there's a narrative there that if family formations were equal, then we should see equal outcomes in poverty. And that's just not the case. I think that's such an important part. So you're, what you're saying is that I can't just get married and magically I am out of poverty. <laughs> that's right, because, because you know we end up marrying um, in many ways, um, on um, people who are like us, right? And so our social networks, the people who we are, who we are around. And so we end up um, marrying people who are along the lines of education, along the lines of income, who are similarly positioned as we are. Now, there are some variations in that, right? To want to make clear. But if you get a person who is economically poor, who marries someone else who is economically poor, you just get two economically poor people, right? <laughs> and so if the, you know, so we have to be careful in how we frame the role of families as it relates to economic inequality. Mm-hmm. I think that's so key when we're even, as you mentioned, when we're even thinking about who gets married, right? Um, and then who is marrying whom? Um, I talk about this with my students all the time, you know, our networks, who we interact with is very much structured by a lot of things that we had no opinion about and no choice with. 
Um, But that then guides the opportunities that we have. Um, And we often try to divorce kind of our present circumstances from those contexts. Um, And then we come to very poor or incomplete conclusions. Indeed, indeed. Um, Now, I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about um, some of the other narratives that we have about families, about maybe even, again, like who is doing family right or who is doing family (laughs) wrong or because there are a lot of different types of families. Marriage is one type, um, which often is what we think of as, quote unquote, family. But there are a lot of different types of families, extended families, fictive kin, multi-generational households. Um, But it seems like we really focus on this nuclear, you know, married husband and wife, right? Mm-hmm. Heterosexual mm-hmm. That's right. Um, That's right. with with their biological offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how that maybe limits or constrains um, how we're thinking about policies and how we're thinking about, you know, help to families. So so in order to like really get at that, you, I'm, I'm super excited right now because you, <laughs> your, your questions are... Um, um, lend themselves to the work that I do or the work that I am really pushing forward um, to, to really grasp that the ideas that you're putting forth, we have to step back for a second okay. in that we have to think about the ideal of race itself, right? So many social scientists and some in, in, in many ways, lay persons and policymakers will say that race is a social construction. And then, but that's it, right? Like, no one knows what that really means in reality. So, excuse me. So part of my work is really asking the question, well, what does the social construction of race really mean? And to really answer that, what I do for students and, and part of the stuff I write is ask, is ask the question, do you think that racism leads to race or does race lead to racism? Now, the latter one is usually our taking for granted assumption that racial groups just exist by, by happenstance. They just, they just exist, right? And because racial groups exist, then people become racist, right? That is some type of behavior. And this interpretation of racism is often conflated with discrimination, right? And so a, a person is thinking about, okay, there are racial groups and people become racist. But if we, in a post-civil rights era, especially in the context of Memphis, Tennessee, where a lot of the kind of civil rights movement is happening, then many folks' imagination is that racism no longer exists given the passing of the civil rights legislation, et cetera. But many critical scholars like myself are challenging scholars, layperson, policymakers, that racism actually makes the ideal of race possible. So if we, if we start from the idea that racism involves two things, one, ideology, the idea that human groups can be hierarchically structured as a superior race and an inferior race, and then we have a structural component of racism in that policies, laws, social practices, even discourse and language actually cements our ideology, right? And so it's not a, I want to be clear here that it's not directional. The ideology part of racism and the structural part of racism are mutually reinforcing. They reinforce each other. And so that the ideologies and structures make the ideal of race possible. So what ends up happening 
when we think about family and, 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 and because my work focuses on black families in particular, black families have a unique position in, in the United States given the history of slavery, right? And so there's historians and legal scholars who have been talking about this for years who have made the argument that as black, black people who are racialized as black transition out of slavery into a kind of quote unquote freedom, what we see is that marriage became a part of citizenship rights, right? So, so for black women, and this is a, a really good um, example of how we should think about um, black women's position in a system of white supremacy and patriarchy in that black women leave a state sanctioned institution called slavery only to enter a state sanctioned oppressive institution called marriage in, in which men are head of the household, right? So we are structuring marriage or families in a particular way to serve a particular purpose, right? So if black families are to quote unquote make it, you need to work under the auspices of a Eurocentric imagination, right? And so now you still subjugate it because of Jim, um, Jim Crow laws, et cetera, but black women really get the shorting of the stick, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so what we see in many scholars, um, um, Climbing Jacob Ladder um, book, um, where, 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 where we see a kind of a variability of family formations. And to, to get to your question specifically, I had to give that context because I'm a sociologist. <laughs> what ends up happening is that black families have, been, have always been diverse. Right, so you have you have black families that are married, but you also have black families that aren't, right? But what happens as we move from a, the kind of reconstruction era to the civil rights era, black women are responding, right? That the idea of not to get married isn't because somehow black people are not interested in marriage. No, the conditions create a kind of response, a kind of agency among individuals to do things differently. But what we see here um, contemporarily is that the state then interprets that adaptive strategy to omnipresent inequality as some kind of deficit, right? That it's the individuals who don't wanna do something to get their lives right, in which the individuals are actually responding to the inequality and adapting in a way for their own survival. So instead of looking at black families in here for this example, as adaptive, they're often looked at as in deficit ways, that there's something uniquely wrong with the ways in which black families operate. And I, that without that history, we end up creating policies, whether it's um, Clinton's um, welfare reform, George W. Bush Healthy Marriage Initiative, um, policies in which uh, President Obama has also kind of have continued that line of reasoning mm -hmm. without stepping back and saying, wait a minute, if there is a disproportionate amount of black and brown families who are not getting married, the critical question becomes why? Right? What are the structural issues? What are the historical circumstances? Right? And without doing that, we place, we kind of loosely here, we place emphasis on the wrong thing. 
And because those policies we've seen over time has not yield any favorable benefits for low-income families, particularly those who are non-married. Now, I know I've said a lot here, but I had to do this context as a true sociologist because then the conversation wouldn't make sense without that context. Yes, no, that context was so important. Thank you for that. Because again, the point is we come to a, a, a reality now where we're having conversations about families and these conversations are very much guided by older beliefs, beliefs that we continue to perpetuate and that we then incorporate as the truth, right? Without interrogating, okay, well, how did we really get here? How, you know, how are we thinking about families? Whose families? And why do families have to look a specific way in order for us to care for them or see them as valid? So I think that context was so important. Um, but let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Dedrick Williams, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And we are talking about families, we're talking about inequality. And before the break, Dedrick, you really laid out some great context for thinking about families and thinking about specifically race and families and getting to this point about um, in economic inequality um, within families. And I just want to reiterate um, something that you said earlier, which is that, you know, when we see these different uh, levels of poverty, in particular, how we started the show talking about different poverty rate is not because of families themselves or that something is wrong with you know people and their family structure and um, that's not what's causing the inequality even though sometimes we take you know lazy logic and try to make that <laughs> be the case but I want to get more to kind of the point of of your research which is really disentangling what is causing inequalities that then show up when we're looking at families. Yeah, so, so that's, that's a really good point. I think um, the causal kind of analysis um, is a con the, the conventional way of thinking and the kind of historical way of thinking, causal analysis have been convenient in that they have been individualistic. I think that's, that's important here and that we, we view inequality, especially in a capitalist society like the US, that if you're not doing well, then that's a byproduct of you making decisions. And I, and I think that, that not only does that make sense to many people, excuse me, but it allows people to step back and not take responsibility for the history of this country, right? And so um, what I like to think about here in terms of causal analysis is really to think about, again, how we think about race itself, right? The racial groups don't just exist. The racial groups are a creation. Inequality, for example, predates race, right? Race is just racism structure, right? And so what happens is that I think the American population has to recognize and realize that the inequality is a pre-existing condition for racial groups to become salient, right? So it's not like, oh, there were, there were racial groups like native populations, and then there were kind of, there were um, 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 the issue with land and genocide, right? No, 
there was a narrative around natives to begin with in order for the genocide to take place. The, the idea of um, um, the transatlantic slave trade is already happening, mm -hmm. but because you have to make sense to continue chattel slavery, race comes in as a way to justify what's already going on. Again, the idea that human groups are inherently, some are inherently superior and, though, and, some, and others are inherently inferior creates this notion of context that we leave out. So if I assume then, like if I don't know that history and I assume that racial groups are biologically or culturally real and that racism is episodic, that is it happened, right? But not now, not in the post-civil rights era. Oh no, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I come to the table with those set of assumptions, then I place the inequality on the individuals because now it is your, like there's no more racism. And so, and if it does happen, it's a few bad apples, right? Mm -hmm. And so inequality in the aggregate often gets interpreted from an individualistic perspective. But critical scholars are saying, look, that's not necessarily accurate because it doesn't lend itself to historical truths. Right. And so if we begin with the idea that we live in a country in which the inequality already existed in racism, in race emerged from racism, then what we're seeing in the contemporary is just new forms of racism emerging. Right. And so when we look at um, um, places like Memphis and other places across the country, when where there with the poverty rates are high, we also have to look at the, the employment and unemployment rates, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one. Two, not only the employment and unemployment rates, but what are like the wages that jobs then have for people to work, right? Are people getting a, a living wage in which they can take care of themselves and their families or are people living kind of under this kind of umbrella of poverty wages. Yeah, they got a job, but they still qualify for TANF, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of those things are a byproduct of a legacy that I think Americans have not really grappled with enough. And, and, and to really understand where is the point of emphasis? Do we emphasize the individual, which is what usually happens, or do we individual or do we focus on the kind of conditions or the structural constraints in which um, populations have on them the availability of jobs, are those jobs actually paying enough money for their survival, et cetera? Mm, so you said a lot there. First of all, <laughs> historical yeah. truths about inequality. You know, we have historical amnesia because that would often require that we do have to think about structural change. Right. It right. is easier to say, well, you as an individual are doing something wrong, <laughs> right? That is very easy. It's much harder to look at policies, practices um, that are still enacted today that are having these different outcomes or that are, are not taking into consideration past harm. Uh, I think it's important what you talked about, unemployment or employment rates, also wages. 
I think another key piece um, is thinking about, to, to, to your point about the history, right, of a place or space, and now thinking about Memphis and, and the poverty rates, which Memphis has ranked number one or number two for the highest amount of poverty um, in the United States out of different metropolitan areas, highest in child, I mean, we just became number two highest in child poverty versus being number one for several years. So, I mean, I, I guess that's an improvement. Um, but thinking about a city like Memphis with a very specific history um, and thinking about as one part of this history, just to give one example, um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about this is thinking about the histories of racial residential segregation right, right. and how that might show up in um, inequality within families. Yeah, so, so that's a really good point because some of my um, work um, that I'm working, that I'm actually um, executing data analyses and writing up results um, now. Um, and so the ideal of racialized space becomes extremely important to me because we really get at um, we're really getting at like the distribution of racial groups in a population, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I'm I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to spill all my tea um, <laughs> here on um, with you this morning. So my my um my initial response is that spaces are operates in two ways, like racialized spaces operates in two ways. The first way in that they become a mechanism for the maintenance of inequality, right? And so if one way to get, if you, if you already believe that human groups are inherently different and the access to opportunity becomes space-based, right? Who gets to live in what neighborhoods? And we've seen this in the 1930s, um, with the New Deal policies, et cetera, that goes you know up to the civil rights um, movement, in which you know the Fair Housing Authority, et cetera, right? All of those policies plays into the making of the kind of racial composition in a particular place. Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe that human groups are kind of structured in a way of superiority or inferiority, whether it's biology or culturally then you justify the means, right? So you can say, hey, we live in a gated community that's predominantly white, not because we're racist, it's just because people got preferences and we just wanna live in these spaces, right? And so if you take that for granted, what that does is that now, because of the racial composition of the space, it maintains the pre-existing racial inequalities that already exist, but it also reinforces the idea that racial groups are biologically or culturally real, kind of this racial essentialism, right? So if you say like, if you know, if, if there's, there's these narratives around different places that varies across cities, but we know the kind of black side of the neighborhood, right? Or, or where, where, the, where people who are racialized as black live. And if those places are economically poor, then people can say, see, you know, it must be something unique to them biologically or culturally that they can't even create spaces of affluence. Well, what's missing from that narrative is the idea that the government via policies, right? This is the, this is the structural part of racism, 
right? If, if, if there are policies that lend themselves to the structuring or ordering of human groups in particular places, that becomes the sailing in peace. Because if it can be done to create the, the inequity, then programs can be created to reduce them as well. Mm. You know? Yeah. I'm just throw that in there. I'm gonna just, <laughs> just, just a, you know, I'm gonna just throw that in. <laughs> yes. Okay, we're gonna get to some of these uh programs and policies um in a moment, but I, I just wanna add on to that when we think about racial residential segregation. We think about the city of Memphis. Um, we have Memphis and then we have Shelby County, which Memphis is in Shelby County, but then we have these kind of separation that has you know, mm -hmm. gone on and, and tried to merge and not merge over time in a lot of different ways. But I mean, this shows up these histories of having a separate city and county government and resources and investments shows up even contemporarily as we look at the data that shows in Memphis, there's a higher poverty rate than in in Shelby County, right? right and it right, is right, structured right. along those racial lines where we see Memphis as being predominantly African-American and Shelby County, you know, less so, right? So those clear um, demarcations of where people who are assigned to different racial groups should live. Um, and then that is then um, shepherded through practices both explicit and implicit around housing, around banking, around, and then, um, of course, carrying over into schooling. And, and so all these begin to compound. And then you have families, right, who are in poverty. And again, as we've been talking about throughout the conversation, seen as the reason for their poverty versus, right. Right. okay, these legacies of exclusion and disinvestment from communities. And and, and just to add to that uh, one, one thing, because what ends up in, in these types of narratives, what ends up happening is that there's a kind of suggestion that, well, folks in poor areas should just move to um, areas where they're more affluent, right? And that's difficult to do in many ways, right? Because you need the economic resources to, to do that. And if you live in poverty, that's just difficult to do. But let's just take um, people who often do, right? People. Um, um, again, my work is on Black families, so I'll be focusing on those narratives more so. And so let's take kind of um, Black families that have high levels of education and high levels of income, and they do move to these spaces, but they're not fully integrated into these spaces at, at, that our imagination would like, right? So we know through kind of qualitative and quantitative analyses that even kind of black middle class are still living on the peripheral, right? They're more likely to live with um, near residents who are racialized as white and who are economically poor, right? Now they may be different in, they may be distant in terms of residential um, living space from um, people who are racialized as black and economically poor, but they don't get the same returns on their education and income um, similar to someone who racialized as white with those characteristics. And so I wanna make clear here that it's the ideal of racism is so ingrained in the US that even when you take these individual level or family level characteristics, and if there are the same between racialized groups, the returns are still unequal. And so I wanna um, um, make that point 
um, not to suggest that all that all poor people have to do along racial lines is just move. Well, it's, it's much more complex than that. And if we look at people with the same with similar education and income, uh, the returns on those are still different. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for bringing up that point, because what we've learned so far this morning is you can't just get married and expect you're going to magically be uplifted out of poverty. And even when you are, quote unquote, doing things right, whether that is education or, you know, um, or marriage, right, um, that there are still differential returns by race. So if we would expect that these kind of ideas of individualistic uplift and achievement would lead to equal outcomes, then we should see that. But we And I think that's so important. So I'm so glad that you you made that point. Well, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM, and we'll be right back after the break. I'm Sanaa, and I'm joined by Dr. Dedrick Williams, an assistant professor of sociology at UT Knox, and we have been talking all about families and income, economic inequality, and debunking a lot of myths around how we think about families, how we think about economic inequality, and also how we might you know, solve these issues. Of, of poverty. And so I do want to talk more about how we might be thinking about solutions. Um, I know as sociologists, we're often, you know, we know all the problems. Indeed, indeed <laughs> we do. Indeed we do. Uh, even if we don't know exactly how the problem started or have attributed to wrong causes, we know the problems, um, but we're often uh, short on solutions. <laughs> um, so from your view, let's just um, kind of bring it back to how we started um, this conversation this morning. We talked, or I briefly talked about um, the child tax credit, the monthly tax credit. And I'm wondering, you know, is that a solution that, you know, could work. Um, We see it has um, benefited in some ways, right? Um, But is that along the type of solution that we could be thinking about? Or is there something else that we should be considering either in addition to or other than? I hear you. Um, So the child tax credit is important. You know, um, the idea, right, in theory, right, Um, because you, the goal is to make the lives of people better, right? And I think, um, but what happens is that it, uh, it, you know, we don't take into account, um, for lack of words, um, pre-existing conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so my particular philosophy about this is both and. It's not just let's drop this and do something else. I think because inequality is so rampant in the United States, we have to think about a kind of multi-pronged approach, right? So child tax credit is just one, excuse me, um, one of many things that could happen. And I, and, and, and if, again, to your point of sociologists understanding all the problems, but then don't offer any solutions. And I've been thinking about this over the last five years, at least over the last five years, um, to think about um, the, we need to think about investments, right? What are, we have to look at, um, because my because my work is about kind of spatial inequality of looking at um, racial compositions of a particular area, then we need to think about the long-term investments, right? Like we need to think about putting, and this could be at the federal or state level in which we, 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 we reimagine inequality 
not from the perspective of a kind of individualistic individuals' failures, mm. but rather the unequal the unequal returns of policies, mm. right? And so now, if we come to the table saying, you know what, there have been some policies in this country that, although meant well, but had different ritual returns historically and contemporarily, because we never accounted for the legacy of slavery. We never accounted for Jim Crow laws, right? We just said, hey, we, we can't discriminate anymore, right? Like legally, right? But there's still loopholes even in that, right? And so if we step back and say, you know, we can't think about these problems as individuals failure, but rather the, the unequal returns to policies. And because of that, we need to start now investing in the future. And that, uh, that's gonna really challenge us to think about invest, investing in spaces. So instead of telling people to move, no, mm -hmm. we need to think about what, what does that look like to have a predominantly black space in which there is federal and state funding that's shoveled into it to help communities, right? We're not, and I, and I don't mean building some more project housing, right? No, it means literally investing in communities. That's, that's um, employment opportunities, that's housing, affordable housing, so that people are not being, are not homeless. Um, it means having jobs that pays um, living wages. Um, it means also public transportation that's effective. Um, it also means um, really thinking about what jobs, it's not a coincidence that many of the jobs, especially during COVID, that been exposed, that a lot of the, you know, the, the jobs that, that were really um, um, affected by COVID are disproportionately are employees that are black and brown folk, right? But they're also low-wage jobs, right? And so we can't say people work, work, work. No, pay, 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 right? People don't, people want to work, right? Part of our sense of self, part of the makes us like human, especially in, in, in a, uh, um, a capitalist society, is the idea of work. But if you're telling people to work for meager fare mm -hmm. and expect them to still be out of poverty, right? And part of this narrative as well is not just so when I talk about community investment, it's also schools, right? So all of these things, so if, if you wanna see returns, because the way we've been doing it clearly does not work. Mm -hmm. So if we want returns to our communities, to our schools, there has to be an active and purposeful investment with the idea that things are gonna take time to get better, but that's better than saying it's gonna get better and, and still blaming it on individuals. If we're creating policies, right, at, again, at the state and federal levels that really invest in communities, homes, um, um, jobs, schools, that we, we, should, we should see in the long run, the returns of those efforts. Right, it's not going to be. Uh, there's no. Unfortunately, we don't have a magic wand, right, to kind of abracadabra our way back to e not back, but 
um, abracadabra our ways to equality. Rather, we have to be intentional and purposeful in understanding how we got here. Because if we don't understand how we got here or really want to reckon with that reality, then we're going to continue shoveling smoke, right? But if we have a real conversation on how we got here, the disinvestment, right? There's in the United States, there's a book called The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, but there has been a dispossessive, there has been a, a possessive disinvestment, sorry, in blackness, right? And so if we're conscious about that reality and just own it, right? In order to do, you know, in order to move forward, we have to first admit that there has been some problems. Mm-hmm. And moving forward requires a multi-pronged approach in which there's an active, purposeful, conscious investment in the lives of black and brown folk without penalizing them because the, you know, the conventional imagination is that individuals don't want to do a particular thing. So I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as you were talking, what I heard was accountability. Hey, hey, you said it now. <laughs> I'm on your show. <laughs> and, you know, as I feel like human nature is to run from accountability. Uh, and so I think there is a big, a big, a big challenge here um, to take accountability and to, like you said, have this active, purposeful, and conscious investment, which it right. does have to be. When we're thinking about in in righting any type of wrong, it does take this conscious and active action because otherwise we just do what has been done, what is patterned, what is quote unquote normal at this point, and we continue to replicate exactly what has existed that's right that's right and and no and part of that is you know there's there's um political lines and party lines that no one wants to really reckon with right instead of you know creating a system in which there's us versus them how about we think about this as a collective right is that you know maybe i'm i'm thinking you know i'm um you know in my the, the ideal type of sorts, right? Like, because it's, it's either some political party has done something wrong and now the other political party is like playing the blame game. And at the end of the day, black and brown, black and brown communities are still at the bottom of the, you know, um, at the bottom of the well, right? And so what my concerns is that there has to be an open and honest conversation and say, you know what? We have not done the things that we needed to do because we created the illusion of equality without actually creating policies and laws and social practices to make that happen across all persons in these United States of America. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that emphasis on the collective. Right. Um, I think, you know, something that has come up in my conversations with a lot of guests is this focus on the collective, on community, which I think 
COVID really emphasized on how much we do need community, um, how much we need the people who live in proximity to us, as well as communities that might be, you know, across the internet or, or, you know, wherever. Um, But this focus on community and that we all are connected. Um, What is, yeah, what is happening, you know, in our country is is impacted and impacting what's happening in other countries. And obviously we see that um, with COVID, right? Um, But this, this very much this emphasis on community, on the collective, and again, on accountability. Um, Now, I'm wondering, is is there any or are there any particular policies or bills that you know that are maybe being talked about or that are coming up that we might want to be um, particularly attuned to or paint or thinking about um, as it pertains to economic inequality, as it pertains to families? Um, so much of what we've talked about has been a part of that. So child tax credit, other investments in in communities and in schools, um, investments in employment, um, like like, there's a a kind of um, um, paradox for lack of words. So to answer your question explicitly, there's there's things that are happening in the background, but I don't wanna talk about those because they're they're kind of in flux, right? Mm -hmm. There's these, these, arguments that are being made, but there's pros and cons, there's strengths and weaknesses. And I don't want to really um, talk about that in a way because those are, again, policies that are not really policies. There are conversations that people are trying to push toward policies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's a few that comes to mind, but um, to, to not engage in that dialogue because I don't want to seem as if I am a proponent or mm-hmm. I um, disagree with these particular efforts. I, I need to see more, right? I need to, I need to see more. Um, but I, I think what um, I, I want to believe that I, I think the American population, um, again, I may be naive here, but if we can expose the fact that there are people who are really working like two, three jobs mm-hmm. and still are either still making poverty, still you know, qualifying for TANF or just over the poverty mark and they can't qualify for TANF, but they're still quote unquote low income. I think we as a country need to expose those data a bit better to the population. Because I think underneath the assumption is that if you work, that's enough, right? But it's more than that. It's more than just having a job, right? It's about having jo- a job that really like really take care of you, right? If, if you're working, but you're still trying to, you know, buy bread and milk, right? That's the contradiction is, 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 is just wild to me. And to knowing and to know that our um, in the United States. Our productivity has increased over time, but yet, um, and inflation, of course, increases over time, but minimum wage hasn't, right? And so I think we really need, at the, at the bare minimum, so I'm, I'm giving this kind of um, bare minimum ideal type of narrative here in that if we want people to work and we want um, equality, right? if we want it, then the key question is about jobs, availability, and pay. Mm-hmm. 
Those two things, the one is often at the expense of the other. There's narratives of, um, from politicians, from laypersons, policymakers. It's about work, but people just need to work. They need to work. And, and what we see during COVID, right? A lot of businesses don't have employees. And the big debate is whether or not, well, that's because the government is giving people money in, in the terms of unemployment benefits, right? But that's a bigger picture. Like to believe that people will sit at, sit at home to get welfare, um, unemployment, sorry, unemployment benefits and not integrate the hourly wage is really, really short-sighted, right? Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, are Americans getting paid a livable wage that can really be translated into food, shelter, and clothing, mm -hmm. right? That's, I mean, again, like those questions are important. And if we believe that racial groups are somehow kind of essentialist or which means biological or culturally real, then we, it's easy to say, well, pe those people just don't want to work. But if we understand the ideal of race is socially constructed to justify pre-existing inequalities, then we have to take a look in the mirror as a country and say, well, are we doing, are we repeating the same thing just in new ways? Mm -hmm. Or can we really push the needle forward to suggest that we not only need jobs, but well-paying jobs and put people responsible, you know, you know, create restrictions. I mean, that's, that's totally, like we have a quote unquote minimum wage for a purpose, but what happened is that we have, have played around with it, right? There's a, there's a need to push how much people get paid again, to make sure that all Americans have food, shelter and clothing right because that makes all the difference mm. i feel like i'm preaching now so i'm gonna <laughs> fall back i'm gonna fall back on it now <laughs> no that i think that was a perfect way for us to conclude our conversation this morning because some of of the the responses or the solutions to these problems really go back to basic humanity and That's caring right. for one another right. so That's back right. to that understanding of the collective and um, that often gets lost in you know a lot of posturing from different groups and you know Indeed. all that Indeed. but when it comes down to it you know it is it is very it is very simple but we make it complicated well, I want to thank you so much, Dedrick, for joining us. I've learned so much in talking with you this morning, and I know our listeners have as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a, um, a pleasure to actually engage in this dialogue about these pressing issues. So thanks again. Thank you again to Dr. Dedrick Williams for joining us this morning and giving us some much needed context to how we think about families and how we think about family economic inequality. I know these are conversations that are continuing to come up in our national conversation around families, around the extension of the child tax credit. So I thought it was so important to talk to an expert to give us some information about how we should be thinking about, about families, about economic inequality, about poverty, but more importantly, about the policies and programs that could really make a difference in people's lives.
For today's positive note, I wanted to leave you a quote by Amanda Gorman that says, there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here every Monday morning chatting with experts from across the country and chatting with you, our listener. Now, of course, if you miss a show or maybe there was just a piece of information that you're like, oh, I need to hear that again. Remember, you can always catch the replay of the show on WYXR.org or in the podcast format on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. I can't wait for you to join me back here next Monday morning.